Hello, goblins and ghouls, and welcome to My Haunted Life Podcast, the podcast all about the dark history behind your favorite paranormal stories. I'm your host, Angela Hartshorn. morning goblins and ghouls how is everyone doing out there today i hope your day is easy going with no major hurdles that show up just a nice easy flow i will admit i have been a bit all over the place i have hearsecon this weekend in aurora colorado for anyone in the area. I just closed out the booth at the Colorado Renaissance Festival. Plus, I'm still recovering from Midsummer Scream. I'm a little bit burnt out. I just want to lay in bed and read ghost stories. (laughs) That after-con depression is hitting me hard, but That means that I get ahead on podcasts, so that's pretty awesome. I have a whole bunch of fun stuff planned for uh, Haunted Doll Month, still upcoming. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten about the fireside chat or the Patreon episode. All of those are coming. I just need to figure out a couple little things because the fireside chat's going to be extra special this time. This week on the podcast, we continue with the haunted dolls. And this time, we are talking about the infamous Annabelle. This sweet little Raggedy Ann doll has caused a lot of trouble. She's tormented nurses, terrified priests, and even almost killed Ed and Lorraine Warren. Unlike Robert the Doll, Annabelle for sure has a movie franchise named after her. I will admit, I have not seen any of the Annabelle movies. Maybe I'll watch them this weekend. Maybe. While Rain and I were at Midsummer Scream, we went out to dinner our last night there, and the guy at the bar next to us somehow figured out we had been at Midsummer Scream. Not sure how. Maybe it was the badges, or the wristbands, or the horror-themed tiki dresses we were wearing. Anyways, this guy starts talking to us about horror movies and he gets all excited and we're bouncing some of our favorites back and forth with him. And then he does it. He asked. He asked if we had ever seen the Annabelle movies. And I let out a sigh, much like I just did. Which seemed to puzzle him and he inquired and I told him I hadn't seen them and there's a good chance I never will and he asked why he was very confused because he really liked these movies I think I sighed again knowing me I probably sighed again and told him that they were historically inaccurate this confused the hell out of him so Today, I am doing the history of Annabelle. So, let's get into it, shall we? Grab yourself a cup of tea, make sure the doors are locked and the sage is close by. I have a story to tell you. 
Looks are deceiving, said Lorraine Warren. It's not what the doll looks like that makes it scary. It is what's been infused within the doll. Evil. Annabelle is the classic Raggedy Ann doll that most of us grew up with, or at least have seen one. It's a little white cotton doll with wild red yarn-like hair, a very round flat face with big black eyes and a little red triangle nose and a drawn-on smile. They always seem to be slumped over like they never had enough stuffing in them. I remember my mom had one. I think that was given to her by an old boyfriend or something, something like that. The doll sat in a rocking chair in my parents' room, which I think is still there, with some other sentimental stuffed creatures. The doll was like three feet tall, and so I was dressed up as Raggedy Ann a couple of years for Halloween because her little pinafore gingham dress and apron fit me. It was easy. I already asked my mom for pictures, but she didn't want to look for them. If they magically appear, I'll post them. It's probably a good thing that I didn't know the story of Annabelle at the time. Of course, I was a child, but... I probably would have lost my shit since this whole star story started because of a mother. In 1970, a mother purchased a Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store for her daughter, Donna, as a birthday present. Donna was preparing to graduate from college with a nursing degree. She lived in a tiny low-rise apartment with her roommate, Angie. Donna thought the doll was cute, and she placed it on her bed as decoration. The third person in this story is a guy named Lou. In some accounts, he's referred to as a friend of the girls. In others, he's Anna's, Angie's boyfriend. And in the demonologist book, he's referred to as Angie's fiancé. Technically, in the demonologist book, it's Laura's fiance because they changed the names in the book and it got really confusing who is actually who, but you get what I'm saying. According to Lou, he never liked the thing. There was always something about it that gave him the heebie-jeebies and he made sure the girls knew how he felt. Within only a couple of days, both Donna and Angie started to notice that there seemed to be something different about this doll. The doll mysteriously seemed to move about the house, relatively small movements at first, such as a change in position. But as time passed, the movement became more noticeable. Like, the girls never saw the doll move physically themselves. Like, they never saw it with their own eyes. But there would be times when the girls would come home to find the doll in a completely different room. Like, it had been teleported. Sometimes the dolls would be found with legs crossed, arms folded. Other times it would be found upright, standing on its feet. Again... These things, they're floppy. Standing on its feet is not something they're capable of doing. Donna would even test the doll. She would position the doll in a certain position, remember very distinctly where she put the doll, just to find it had moved every time. And it was like, it wasn't like it was slumping into the same position every time. Like I said, it seemed understuffed, making them, well, floppy. There would be times that Donna would cross the legs 
at the ankles to come home to them uncrossed and straight out. Me being me, my initial thinking says that it makes sense depending on the stuffing level of the doll when she left. The arms and legs crossed that they would eventually uncross and fall by its sides due to gravity, just, you know, floppy weight. I don't know how many more times I'm going to say floppy. Then there would be times she would lay the doll out flat, flat, with her legs and arms straight forward, but flat on the bed, not crossed or anything. And then come home to the arms and legs crossed in front of it. Now that's an entirely different thing going on right there. Another time the friends came home to the doll sitting in the chair near the front door and the doll was kneeling. That's how they found it. They picked up the doll and tried as they might to get the doll to kneel again. It doesn't have joints or anything. It's just like two tubes filled with stuffing. The jaw just kept falling over. So that was a weird one. Several times, Donna sometimes left the doll on the couch before leaving for work. When she would return, the doll would be back in her room on the bed. With the door closed. So it's able to open and close doors. Like with all of these experiences and stories, things just got worse. About a month into their experiences. A month. It was a month. It was so quick. Donna and Angie began to find messages on parchment paper that read, Help Us and Help Lou. The handwriting looked as if a small child had written it. The creepy part about the message was not the wording, but the way they were written. At the time, Donna and Angie had never kept parchment paper in the house on which the notes were written. So, where did it come from? We have talked about things happening like this before, where entities, usually of a demonic nature, having the ability to pull things out of thin air, basically, materialize things. It's really similar to the Lamont Demon case in Illinois we talked about in the Resurrection Mary episodes. And then another weird thing. Same thing with the pencil. The messages were always written in pencil. As hard as the girls search, they couldn't find a pencil in the house. They had no idea where the paper or the writing utensil was coming from. Also, Lou was never in any danger that he knew of at the time. They didn't know this, but he was actually in a lot of danger. The girls started to wonder if somebody was playing a joke on them, like friends or the landlord, somebody with keys was coming in and moving things around. So they started leaving marks on the windows, I think with chalk and doors and arranging the carpets and furniture around. So if somebody had come in, they would have definitely disturbed their lines or moved things, but nothing was ever disturbed or moved or even changed. Except for the doll. Another weird occurrence that happened uh, around Christmas time. There appeared to be a little chocolate boot that just appeared on the stereo that none of them had bought. Just, just this random piece of chocolate. This doesn't sound like 
too terrible a thing to me. I mean, who who doesn't like surprise interdimensional chocolate? But then you start like really delving into how this could have happened, and it just becomes a spiral. <laughs> like that meme with the lady with all the math around her. Another time the trio was at home and watched a statue. I don't know a statue of what, but a statue lift into the air, flip around, and crash to the floor. One night, Donna came home to find the doll had moved again. This time, it was on her bed. Donna had come to find that this was typical of the doll, and somehow she knew this time was different. Something wasn't right. A sense of fear came over her when she inspected the doll and saw what looked like blood drops on the back of its hands, and it had three drops of blood on its chest, seemingly from nowhere. She had no idea where this liquidy red substance had come from, let alone how it had gotten onto the doll. It's not on her bed or anything. It's just these random, what looks like blood, on the doll. Scared and starting to feel a little bit desperate, Donna and Angie decided it was time to seek help. Not knowing really what to do, they contacted a medium and a seance was held. The medium came up with the name of the spirit as Annabelle Higgins. Annabelle was a young girl that resided on the property before the apartments was built. Was built, really? Were built. She related that she had happy times there, playing in the fields that were once there. I'm not 100% sure if they were fields that were owned by her family. I'm not, it's really hard to find anything about Annabelle Higgins. There is, however, a picture of her. And how we know this is her, I don't know. Anyways, she was a young girl of only seven years old when her lifeless body was found in the field. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> like, that's it. That's all we know. We don't know what happened to her. Just her body was found. If a body was ever found. The spirit said in life she didn't have anyone her age to play with, being surrounded by working adults. So that's why the spirit was attracted to the young girls. Which I think is very sweet, but I've had friends go through nursing school. There is no extra time. The spirit related to the medium that she felt comfort with Donna and Angie and wanted to stay with them and be loved by them, like a lost child. That's why she started moving the doll. She wanted their attention and suggested that she would like to move in to the doll. The medium claimed that the spirit was benevolent, feeling compassion for Annabelle and her story, Donna gave her permission to inhabit the doll and stay with them. After that, they started referring to the doll as Annabelle. Now remember, Lou had never been fond of the doll and on several occasions warned Donna that it was evil and to get rid of it. Donna had a compassionate tie to the doll and was not giving credence to Lou's feelings. This is a classic thing with these types of hauntings, causing isolation and separating you from your friends and family. 
think Sally from the Sally House episode last year. I think in spooky season. The wife in that case had so much sympathy for the spirit of the little girl ghost that her maternal instinct took over and it started to cause a rift between her and her husband since he was not having the same pleasant experiences with the ghost. Pretty quickly, Annabelle took the same path. Lou had been having recurring bad dreams that he believed Annabelle was giving him. And they were dreams about the doll. Just, it would be there. He, he always remembered they were about the doll. One night, these things took a dangerous turn. He awoke one night from a deep sleep in an absolute panic. Only this time something seemed different. It was as though he was awake, but he couldn't move. He looked around the room but couldn't discern anything out of the ordinary, but it was like he was paralyzed. Looking down toward his feet, he saw the doll, Annabelle. It began to glide up his leg, moved over his chest, and then stopped. Her little hands reaching up to either side of his neck, and he felt this electrical connection, he described it as. The doll then started strangling him. It was even weirder because Lou could see himself fighting against the doll. Like, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. He described it feeling as though he was pushing a wall because it wouldn't move. I was literally strangling to death and I couldn't help myself no matter how much I tried. That is absolutely terrifying. He ended up passing out. Lou awoke the next morning, certain it wasn't a dream. Lou was determined to rid himself of the doll and the spirit that possessed it. However, she wasn't done with him yet. Preparing for a road trip, Lou and Angie were reading over maps alone in the apartment one night, around 10 or 11. The apartment seemed eerily quiet, they remember. Suddenly, a rustling sound started coming from Donna's room. They initially thought someone had broken into the house. Lou quietly made his way down the hallway to the door to see what was happening. He waited for the noises to stop before entering and turning on the light. Lou scoured the room for any sign of forced entry, but nothing was out of place. Except he noticed Annabelle. It looked like she had been tossed into a corner. But as he got close to the doll, he got the distinct impression that somebody was suddenly standing behind him. Spinning around, he was quick to realize that nobody else was there. Then it's like that initial relief of, oh, nobody's there. And then, oh shit. In a flash, he found himself grabbing for his chest, doubled over in severe pain. His shirt was stained with blood, and upon opening his shirt, there were what looked like seven distinct claw marks, three vertically and four horizontally. All were hot like burns. It was like he had been slashed up and down. These scratches and they're, they're significant. He was bleeding pretty good. They were like gashes. And then they started to heal almost immediately. Half were gone 
the next day. It was all fully gone by day two. Donna finally was willing to believe the spirit in the house was not the benevolent, sweet little girl that they had originally believed. Something was very, very wrong. After Lou's experiences, Donna felt it was time to seek real expert advice and contacted an Episcopal priest named Father Hagen. Father Hagen felt it was a spiritual matter and felt he needed to contact a higher authority in the church. So he contacted Father Cook, who contacted the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine Warren immediately took an interest in the case and contacted Donna concerning the doll. The Warrens, after speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou, came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not, in fact, possessed, but manipulated by an inhuman presence. Now, if you're not familiar with Ed and Lorraine Warren, these guys were the big demonologists at the time, the ghost hunters. They were like some of the original ones. Especially Lorraine as a woman. I have done podcasts on them and done their whole history. I don't want to go into it fully here. But they're they're some of my favorite historical investigators. According to the New England Society for Psychic Research, spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys they possess people an inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or object and this is what occurred in the annabelle case this spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition truly the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll it was looking to possess a human host. The spirit, or in this case, an inhuman demonic spirit, was essentially in the infestation stage of the phenomenon. We talked about this in the Devil Made Me Do It case, but let's go over what infestation is again. What is a demonic infestation? How is it different from possession? There are stages to petronatural manifestations. According to Ed Warren, it starts with encroachment, which is when the spirit is given access to a human entity by voluntary means, such as satanic rituals or involuntarily like someone has been cursed. In this case, them literally giving permission to the doll. Next is demonic infestation. This is the haunted house type of stuff. Footsteps, voices, apparitions, furniture, or other objects being moved without human agency. Odors with no discernible source. Rather than directly affecting people, infestations affect only property, objects, or even animals. If this, isn't, if this isn't taken care of, it can get worse and become demonic oppression. Oppression is where the demon is doing his best to overwhelm the person so he can possess the person. This can be external, such as having havoc in the environment or internal controlling emotions and fear activity steps up with physical attacks sleep disturbances including regular nightmares frequent and severe illnesses major depression or anxiety severe financial or employment problems and even relationship troubles 
while these things happen in normal course of life, all of them happening at once or in rapid succession could be a sign of demonic presence. Next is obsession. Although this sometimes is outlined as part of the oppression stage, as the name applies, the stage at this stage, the affected person has a hard time functioning, being constantly preoccupied with thoughts of demonic activity, commandeering his or her life, and frequently with thoughts of suicide as well. Sleep becomes nearly impossible. All three of these stages can be addressed by a competent deliverance minister. However, the last one is reserved for official exorcists. And this is the big guy. This is the one that you see all the time. This is demonic possession. So this is literally, I don't want to go too far into possession since we all have a basic idea of it because it's not really where we are with this one. It was caught early. According to Ed Warren, there's a fifth stage and that is death. Immediately, the Warrens noted what they believed were stages of demonic infestation, including teleportation, like the doll moving on its own, materialization, the parchment paper notes appearing out of basically thin air, and what they called the mark of the beast, lose claw marks. They determined we're in I'm just, I'm like shocked by that. Anyways, it first began moving the doll around the apartment by means of teleportation to arouse the occupant's curiosity in hopes that they would give it attention that it wanted and then bring a medium into the apartment to communicate with it. This to me, I'm sorry, is a logical first step. You want to know what is going on and you don't have the experience in this sort of thing. So you call someone who does. This seems so benign. I know people who have done this so many times. But in this case, it only made things worse. Manipulating the medium's vision to appear as though it was a lost young girl. This evoked sympathy in the girls and it was able to gain permission from Donna to haunt the apartment. Think vampires. You don't want to ask them in. If you ask them in, you can't get rid of them. And that's when all hell broke loose. It set about cast causing patently negative phenomenon to occur. It aroused fear through the weird movements of the doll. It brought about it brought about the materialization of the notes, the symbolic drips of blood on the doll, and then even attacking Lou. The next stage of the infestation phenomenon would have been complete human possession. Had these experiences lasted another two or three more weeks, the Warrens told them, the spirit would have completely possessed if not harmed or killed, one or all three of them. At the conclusion of the investigation, the Warrens felt it appropriate to have a recitation of the exorcism blessing by Father Cook to cleanse the apartment. The Episcopal blessing of the home is a wardy seven-page document that is distinctly positive in nature. Rather than specifically expelling evil entities from the dwelling, the emphasis is instead directed toward filling the home with a power 
of the positive and of God, as Ed Warren described it. Father Cook was uncomfortable with his role as an exorcist. When he questioned Ed's belief that it was a demon, Ed suggested that they could do something to test it if he really wanted to see something. But Father Cook decided very quickly just just to get it over with. To be fair, he admitted his lack of knowledge in demonology, so it could have been just a clarifying thing. He agreed to perform the rite of exorcism and recited the whole seven pages throughout the apartment in each room. Seven pages in each room. At which point, the Warrens felt confident that the entity was gone. At Donna's request, and as a further precaution against any more phenomenon, the Warrens took the big rag doll along with them when they left. But that's really only the beginning of the Annabelle legend. Upon leaving the apartment, Ed placed the doll in the back seat and agreed he would not take the interstate in the event the inhuman spirit still resided within the doll. This ended up being a good idea. Don't drive on the highway or the interstate with a demonic doll in your back seat. Just, you know, words to live by. Their new car would swerve at each dangerous curve and stalled at every corner, causing the power steering and brakes to fail. Repeatedly, the car verged on collision. After the third time of the car stalling, three, it took, took three times, Ed reached into the back seat and into his black bag and took out a vial of holy water and doused the doll, making the sign of a cross over it. The disturbances stopped immediately and the Warrens arrived safely home. After the Warrens arrived home, Ed sat the doll in a chair next to his desk where she resided for a little bit, just hanging out. The doll levitated a number of times in the beginning, and then it seemed to just fall lifeless into the chair. It was a very ragdoll thing to do. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. During the ensuing weeks, however, it began showing up in various rooms of the house. Once, when the Warrens were away, and the doll was supposed to be locked in the outer office building, they refined, they returned to find it sitting comfortably upstairs in Ed's easy chair when they opened the main front door. Just chilling. No big deal. The demonic liked to relax a little bit too. Just hanging out in Dad's chair. I'm just so amused. Annabelle had a feline friend as well that would materialize next to her sometimes. A black cat would appear at her side. It even stalked around on the floor one time. It seemed to take a great interest in some of the weird things around Ed's office. And then it would go sit next to Annabelle again and dematerialize from the head down. I mean, freaking black cats. The doll also showed a hatred for clergy who came to the house. I don't know. I think this makes sense, considering. One time, Lorraine was home alone, and she heard this horrible, loud growls that seemed to shake the house. She couldn't determine where it was coming from. It just reverberated around the house, as she described it. Later, she noticed that she had 
a message on the answering machine. She listened to it. was back-to-back messages from a Father Kevin's. In between the calls, the growls were recorded. In one instance, Father Jason Bradford, a Catholic exorcist, came to visit the Warrens at their home. Upon seeing the doll seated in the chair, he picked it up and said, You're just a rag doll, Annabelle. You can't hurt anyone. And tossed the doll back in the chair. At which point, Ed basically chuckled and said, That's one thing you better not say. Upon leaving an hour later or so, Lorraine pleaded to the priest to please be careful driving and to call her when he arrived home. Lorraine had a really bad feeling that some tragedy was going to befall him. A few hours later, Father Jason called finally and asked Lorraine why she told him to be careful. Why was she so worried about him? She told him that she felt like his car would go out of control and he would have an accident. He then told her how his brakes had failed as he had entered a busy intersection. He was involved in a near-fatal accident, completely destroying his car. Some stories add that he claimed to have seen Annabelle in his rearview mirror just before the accident, though that wasn't in the demonologist book, and the demonologist book included the cat story, so I don't know about this one, or that part, I should say. Now, here is a bit from the demonologist book. Later in the year, at a large social gathering at the Warrens' home, Lorraine and Father Daniel went into the den to chat for a few moments. By a strange coincidence, Annabelle had moved into that room the day before. While speaking with Lorraine, the priest saw an ornamental wall decoration make a quick movement. Suddenly, the 24-inch long boar's tooth necklace above them exploded with percussive force. Hearing this stunning noise, other guests immediately converged on the room, at which time someone in the crowd had the foresight to snap a photograph. When developed, the print was otherwise normal, except the doll had two beacons of bright light both pointing in the direction of Father Daniel Mills. On another occasion, Ed recounts, I was in my office working with a police detective on a case that concerned a witchcraft-related murder in the area. As a cop, he's seen every kind of crime. He's definitely not the sort of man who gets scared. While we were talking, Lorraine called me upstairs to take a long-distance call. I told the detective he was free to look around in my office, but to be careful and not to touch any of the objects, because they had come from cases where the demonic had been invoked. Well, I wasn't away for more than five minutes when upstairs came this detective, Stark White. When I asked what had happened, he refused to tell me. Ed remembers, breaking into a grin. He just kept mumbling the doll. The rag doll is real. He was talking about Annabelle, of course. That little doll made a believer out of him. In fact, as I think back on it, any meetings I've had with the detective from that day on have always been in his office. Quick sidebar here. I'm wondering if this is the inspiration 
for a scene, I believe it's in the third Conjuring movie, where they introduce him, the detective, to Annabelle, and suddenly nobody questioned them again. I am wondering. I bet you. Anyways, back to the demonologist. Just later, or just last week, a similar incident occurred here, Lorraine adds. While Ed was away in Scotland, we had a carpenter over to build additional bookcases in his office. The carpenter came upstairs and asked me if I'd move the Raggedy Ann doll to another place so he could continue working. In all honesty, the doll scares me, but Ed wasn't around, so I had to move it. Profane objects, like Annabelle, have their own aura. When you touch them, your human aura mingles with theirs. This change immediately attracts spirits. It's almost like setting off a fire alarm. Therefore, for protection, I blessed myself with holy water, then blessed the rag doll with holy water in the sign of the cross. When I asked the carpenter... If he wanted to bless himself too, he gave me a kind of accommodating smile, saying he didn't believe in spirits or religion, and told me he'd pass on the holy business. Now, our tabby cat, Marcy, had been laying around in Ed's office, as she always does. Just as soon as I picked up Annabelle to move her across the room... Marcy's hair raised up, and she began screeching in pained terror. Her, she edged over to the outside door and began making a strange-sounding call I've never heard a cat make before. Marcy wouldn't stop until I opened the office door and let her out in the sunlight. The carpenter watched all of this in amazement. Then, without saying a word, he reached over, took the holy water bottle from my hand. She says, smiling openly, and promptly blessed himself with it. Like I say, when you're doing field work, I've never met an atheist in a haunted house. I think that's one of my favorite. Lorraine Warren quotes. The Warrens had a special case built for Annabelle inside their occult museum, where she resides to this day. The specially made case of wood and glass was inscribed with the Lord's Prayer and St. Michael's Prayer on the side. For the rest of his life, Ed would periodically say a binding prayer over the case, ensuring the sinister spirit and the doll remained good and trapped. Opened in 1952 when the Warrens also founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, the Warrens opened up the ever-expanding collection of artifacts from their investigations being kept in the basement of their own home. This world-renowned museum has attracted hundreds of thousands of visitors from across the world. Inch for inch, the museum houses the largest array of obscure and haunted artifacts. Items used in extremely dangerous occult activities and diabolic all practices around the world. The eccentric collection contains everything from an alleged vampire's coffin to a child's tombstone used as a satanic altar, death cult curses, demon masks, and psychic photographs line the museum's walls. Some of the big exhibits are the shadow doll that can come to you in your dreams and stop your heart the satanic idol found in the deep woods of Connecticut, the conjuring mirror used for summoning spirits, and the vampire's coffin used by a modern-day 
vampire. There's also a haunted dinosaur toy. So there's some very unclear images of it online. I'm thinking that this is the dinosaur that was owned by David Glatzel that would walk around and talk to him from the Devil Made Me Do It story. If anyone can confirm that, that would be amazing. It sure as hell looks like it, isn't it? Because it looks like the T-Rex the from Toy Story, basically. Think a less cute version of that. And one of the stars of the show, our girl Annabelle. That's probably the worst thing we have in this whole museum, Ed Warren said. Since the case was built, Annabelle no longer appeared to move. We have a priest come in and bless the museum, including Annabelle, says Lorraine. These are prayers that bind the evil, much like a, an electric fence for a dog. But that hasn't stopped her from causing trouble. Most famously, she is thought to be responsible for the death of a young man who came to the museum on a motorcycle with his girlfriend. The young man, after hearing Ed's account of the doll, defiantly went up and began to bang on the case, insisting that if the doll can put scratches on people, then he wanted to also be scratched. Ed said to the young man, son, you need to leave and put him out of the building. On the way home, the young man and his girlfriend were laughing and making fun of the doll when they lost control of the motorcycle and went head on into a tree. The young man was killed instantly, but his girlfriend survived and was hospitalized for over a year. When asked what happened, the young woman explained that they were laughing about the doll when they lost control of the motorcycle. Ed Werns, you do not challenge evil, that no man is more powerful than Satan. Ed Warren passed away on August 23, 2006. Lorraine passed on April 18, 2019. Lorraine got to be a consultant on the first, maybe the second, Conjuring movies. I believe at least the first one. And she actually makes a small little cameo appearance if you watch the part where they're giving the lecture in the middle, or in the very beginning of the movie. There's this adorable old lady sitting in, like, the front or second row. That's Lorraine Warren. And she actually became friends with Vera, I can't say her last name, Farman Jean, the one that played her in the movie. Today, Tony Spera, whom, who has worked with Ed and Lorraine for over 30 years and is still actively investigating demonic activity and also happens to have been their son-in-law, is now the director of the NESPR and head curator of the Warren Occult Museum located in Monroe, Connecticut. I, if you look up the museum, it says it's permanently closed, but I don't, I don't know what's going on with that still. I think it's open by um, appointment. So I don't know. I don't know 100%. I know they have different events coming up where they have like a Paracon coming up that's all Ed and Lorraine Warren and they're bringing some of the artifacts from the museum to see. And of course, I have another show that weekend and I'm very upset about the whole thing. Unlike the other movies in the Conjuring franchise, there are no real-world victims coming forward with their stories. The names of the young priests 
and the motorcyclists were never divulged. They never let, they never told anybody what that was. Neither Donna nor Angie, the two nurses that were Annabelle's first victims, ever came forward. Lou never said anything. Neither Father Cook nor Father Hagen appeared to have mentioned their exorcisms of her ever again. It would appear that we only have the Warren's word that any of this even took place. That being said, personally, considering their history, I believe it. Oh, just one small thing that I feel needs to be mentioned before I go. One of the reasons I never wanted to see the Annabelle movies was that what they did to Annabelle. They made her this creepy, grotesque-looking doll, so immediately, you know, bad things are going to happen. It's not this innocent, unassuming thing anymore. It's meant to immediately be scary. Apparently, they did this because they didn't want to get sued. A toy company wouldn't want to be associated with this, so I guess that's understandable. They could have made her less creepy, but whatever. I can understand why they didn't use the classic Raggedy Ann doll. That being said, I have seen, like the little mini Robert the Dolls we talked about last week, mini Annabelles out there. Ironically, usually sitting next to the, the mini Robert the Doll. I couldn't find these online, so if anybody knows where I can get one, please let me know. Thank you to everyone out there listening today. If you are interested in any more pictures, info, and my sources for this week's episode, make sure to check out my website, myhauntedlifepodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We are continuing with the haunted dolls all month. I am... I'm having too much fun with this. I didn't think I would have as much fun with this as I am. As you all know, I'm not a fan of dolls. And we're going to discuss that a lot more, which is going to be fun. And like I said in the beginning, I, I have some fun things planned. If you have a ghost story to share, email me at myhauntedlifepodcast at gmail.com. And make sure to tell your friends and family about it. Word of mouth goes a long way. You can also follow me on My Haunted Life Podcast on every form of social media. If you like what you hear and want to support the show, please subscribe to the Patreon page. You can support the show for as little as $2 a month. That's not a lot. Music is by Ghost Stories Incorporated. And that's it for this week. I'll see you all next week on my Hunted Life podcast. And until then, stay spooky. Thank you.